0: Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat, I'm Brad White, joined today by Brian Lubers, Bob Larson, and Philip Lancaster. Good morning, guys. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning, Brad. Brad. Happy to have you guys here with us and happy to have you listening with us as well as we're going to have some good topics for today. We're going to talk a little bit about fly control. We're going to talk about euthanasia techniques. It's something nobody really likes to do, but sometimes we have to, so let's make sure that we're doing that the right way, as well as drought management and a little bit on supplementation for stalker cattle. Before we get into that, you guys know science never sleeps. So even in the summer, science is moving forward, and I have been conducting a very critical research experiment this summer. As we're going to baseball every night, each night we've tried a different flavor and brand of sunflower seeds. I'm keeping the stats on which one is ahead in the taste category, but I want to know as you guys are out, what's your favorite sunflower seed?
1: Oh, that's that's a good question. Ah, there's there's when I again when I was growing up, there was one flavor of sunflower seeds. It was called salt. Salt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. But I like the if you tried the little barbecue stuff, that's good. Yeah,
0: yeah, Bar- they didn't they did not rank highly. They did not yeah, rank. No, they're oh, not ranked yeah. highly. No. Philip?
2: I haven't tried them. I mean when I when I was younger, we yeah, the original. Yeah, Yeah, that was, that was all there was. And yeah, I haven't tried any of the
3: new flavors. Yeah. Oh, dill pickle.
0: That's the one that's the winner. How did see Brian has also done science?
3: Uh, no, I spend a lot of time at baseball games. (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, dill pickles really, it's actually good. And then, uh, I think there's a Tabasco flavor I saw at a gas station that I'm interested in trying.
0: Yeah, so we tried we tried a hot sauce lime one, yeah. and it's a close second to the dill pickle. Yeah. But you've got to expand, because dill pickle does not sound like it'd be good on sunflower seed. But when it's hot, they're excellent. So I would recommend trying them, and do your own experiment.
1: So have you had any big fails, like, like that did not work?
0: For, for me, ranch... is is not good.
1: Yeah,
3: Uh, Because that sounds promising.
0: Yeah. I I think ranch could be okay. Brian, you're you're a ranch
3: guy? I'd like ranch dressing, but I have not had uh, ranch sunflower seeds.
0: I wouldn't go there. So as, as we go to the... As we think about summertime, baseball, the other thing that also attends baseball games and sometimes other cattle events is flies. And we talked last time a little bit about fly control. And we addressed with pink eye that there are some fly control techniques but i want to talk today about how do we apply it because as we've got cattle and they're out on grass and we talked about using fly tags well if they're out on grass that may not be an option so i could get them back in and put on fly tags i could use a topical pour on i could use a dust bag i could spray them from a distance there are some products that are set up where you can actually Uh, apply them from a distance on cattle. So what do you guys think about as far as different methods of application, which is best?
1: I think you brought up something really important is is sometimes it's even what is possible or eh, practical in that um, some of the products that work pretty well, but but I would have to gather the cattle and you're talking about pairs, you know, and so uh, it's a hot summer day and to apply something like a pour-on or or sprays, they're gonna have to be gathered, and that that may or may not work. Now, somebody that's rotational grazing or something like that, and gathers cattle, and it, some something that's more high handling may work for them. But I think for a lot of people, things like dust bags and oilers work well because in the middle of summer, I don't have to gather the cattle; I just have to monitor the the fly application method and and recharge it and make sure that it's full and ready to go uh but i think that's one of the reasons a lot of people like that it's one of the reasons i like that method
0: what do you think philip
2: oh i don't know i mean we haven't got a whole lot of experience with with that we used some sprays in in the past and ear tags and and i mean i agree with bob some of the practicality depends
1: on what you can do and how you can get them up there one of the problems with with ear tags is if I put them in early, a lot of times by now, middle of July, I've got flies again, and and that's what's can be frustrating. Is we had decent fly control earlier in the summer, and then we we're getting here midsummer, and and it may be failing.
3: Yeah, no, I I tend to agree with the rest of the discussion. Practicality drives a lot of our fly control, and um, you know, one thing you didn't mention before the feed through. IGR. Yep, uh, IGR. Yeah, so, um, you know, practicality and cost, I think, are probably the two major drivers, and people are making decisions those ways. Um, so, you know, and- so
0: maybe just to pick up on that just a little bit, so mechanism of action, you could have things that kill flies, things that repel flies, things that, like IGRs, which is a insect growth regulator that, as you feed it, goes through and hopefully prevents them from hatching
1: right? Yep. That's yep. kind of the mechanisms. The,
3: the big ones. Yep. Well, how much, so uh,
1: we've got Dr. Lubers here, so how much of I just know, I said it put in t- fly tags early in the summer, had good control for a while and here we are halfway through the summer and I've got a lot of flies. Is that just because the fly tags are, you know, running out or is it because of resistance that the flies have developed resistance?
3: I, I I'm not a fly expert, um, but I do think in most of those cases, it's probably because we've lost the chemical, right? Mm-hmm. The, the chemical has a shelf life and it's waned and now the we have flies that are able to be there, right? Um, I, I don't know that fly resistance to chemicals occurs a lot, but I imagine that it does, right? And for I know for a while at least we've recommended that when people put fly tags in, they also take them out, yeah. right? Because we don't want those... Low-level drug exposures that could promote resistance, but then now we have not one handling event, but we have two handling events. Yeah, you add some complexity there because yeah. what I what
1: I've heard parasitologists talk about is you know we've got two big classes of drugs with organophosphates and pyrethroids, and as far as the horn flies are concerned, we we do have some pyrethroid resistance issues in some some horn fly populations. Less so with the organophosphates which then some of what we get into is, well, it's a little more complicated than just putting out fly control, that it, this is a place to talk to your veterinarian. A lot of times they, they, we recommend, you know, some rotation between organophosphates and pyrethroids, but that's got to be done well or you'll, you, you won't really solve the problem. Uh, so a lot of times it's about thinking through a total fly control program, particularly one that'll get you through this middle part of the summer. And And we talked a little bit, so here, here's a question for you, because um, I, I think fly tags are highly convenient, but my biggest problem with them is we put them in too early. We put them in when we handle the cattle in May, and that's probably too early. Um, but we like them because it's a one-time, don't have to worry about it for the rest of the summer. So here's my question. Is Do you think that the fly tags cause more resistance than other methods of application? Because I'm suspicious that, that because of this waning dose in the fly tags that we're actually more at risk for resistance with fly tags and some other methods of applying chemicals
3: i i don't know um i i think if we're making extrapolations from bacteria which is where we know most of our resistance i i'm not necessarily convinced that it's always the low exposures that Create resistance. So, if we're talking about antibiotic resistance, what I tell people is, any exposure has the potential to develop resistance. And so, uh, if you think about
0: because you select, you kill the non-resistant, yeah, either flies or
3: bacteria, and you is.
0: select whatever the yeah. dose is, you select for a resistant population.
3: Yeah. So, not not every exposure does right. Because if I have a, so we we talk a lot about the drugs, but we often don't talk about. The other side which is the parasite the bacteria or the pest and so if the population is totally susceptible and they get a high enough dose we kill them all and we don't have resistance in that scenario but when you talk about doing that thousands or hundreds of thousands or million times over and over and over again and you talk about i'll use the broad term pests so flies or bacteria that reproduce much more quickly than we do now i'm starting to select for and that's how i get resistant so i don't know if i can answer your question about Uh, flies bob but just generalizing well and it's one of
1: the things probably all of us in agriculture need we had philip's wife on a few weeks ago talking about resistance in, in weeds and i mean it's really maybe it's an oversimplification but whether we're talking antibiotics for bacteria or fly control or dewormers or weeds we didn't talk about resistance when i was a kid mainly because some of those products we didn't even have um but uh, it's it's not that's a problem that's not going away and we probably need to get more and more serious about how we're going to deal with it in whatever species we're talking about
0: but i think any method of application you could concur or select for resistance right so whether i put it as a as a spray or i put it in a dust bag or i put it in a fly tag any of those are going to start out with a higher dose when they hit the cattle, and then that dose is going to decrease over time. Now, the amount of time is going to depend on the product and what you're using, but I I think it's something to be thinking about that I I agree with Brian. It doesn't have to be a lower dose, but we do see that some products with long-term lower doses you go through more generations, right? Which is what you were saying of whatever pest it is. And the more generations you go through, the more chance you have of having a resistant one. So I think it's something to think about when you plan fly control. And, and this is, I guess the message I'd like to leave with is, as you think about a strategy for flies, it's more than just I'm going to go out and
1: kill all the flies today.
0: You have to think about what am I going to do in the future? What am I going to do next time? What's my strategy or my plan?
1: Yeah, I think I think that's one thing we've kind of learned is you got to look at a little bit longer time frame.
0: Longer time frame than just today. So I, I think one of the other topics, and we wanted to talk about this, and this is not a particularly fun topic to talk about. All of us have had to euthanize something at some point. We usually don't like to do that, and sometimes we put it off to the last resort. But I want to address it because sometimes we'll see this, and I'll I'll give you guys a, a scenario. Uh, and let's say we've got a cow with a chronic illness, and I really don't want to transport her, and she's not suitable to be sold. So I want to, I may or may not want to euthanize her, and I want to get you guys advice. How do I make that decision? And if I do decide to euthanize her, what are some of the things to think about? I
1: think the scenario you just gave that during my lifetime as as working with cattle, the the general consensus is we need to probably make that decision earlier rather than later. Um, In that, um, and some of that societal pressures that the, the problem is it's hard, no one has perfect knowledge. So I see a cow and I say, I don't think it's likely that she'll get better. And the, the producer could say, is there zero chance she'll get better? Well, it's not zero. There's a chance that she could get better. Uh, but it's it's a low probability. And I think earlier in my career, we were more inclined to give her that chance. But that led to some welfare issues because many times they did not get better and they continued to decline. And I think kind of to balance the societal pressures, it's we probably, you know, it's, we're never going to have perfect knowledge. But if that cow, if the veterinarian says, it's not very likely she's going to get better, probably we need to think about euthanasia sooner rather than later from an animal welfare standpoint. Now, knowing that that's not a perfect
0: prediction. There's a, there's a comfort level, and we have to project a little bit to say what makes sense and what doesn't. But there are diseases, cancer eye being one of them, that can progress relatively rapidly, some other diseases that cause them to lose body weight or injury of some sort where they can't get up where you have to you have to make that decision. And we do have the power at least to euthanize. So if we decide to euthanize, and as you mentioned, probably want to do it earlier rather than later, what are my options, Brian? What what can I do to euthanize an adult?
3: So in I think what we've kind of talked a little bit about is we talk about on a lot of these podcasts is, you know, we need to have a plan, right? And so the, the plan considers a lot of factors. And so one of the things, especially when we talk about euthanasia in cattle, are we talking about a single animal event, or are we talking about a mass euthanasia where something, you know, we've, you know, we're in, that time of year where we start to see severe storms. So we've had incidences before where, you know, a tornado ripped through and caused a lot of injury and damage to a a large population of animals. And so the methods that we use can depend on that factor first. So is it one versus multiple, um, other things. So the methods we have available to us essentially would be the physical methods, so that would be like a gunshot or a captive bolt or the chemical methods, which would be an over overdose of anesthetic agent. And they both, um, present safety issues. So, um, so the number of animals, uh, safety to the, the person or people that are doing the euthanasia, um, is a, is a major consideration. Um, and then the final disposition of that animal is another consideration that would kind of help us really lead us to one or the other of those methods.
0: What do you mean, final disposition of the animal?
3: Uh, Are we going to render it? Are we going to compost it? Uh, A lot of renderers won't accept animals that have been euthanized using overdose of anesthetic agents currently. So So
0: if we use an overdose of an anesthetic agent, you, you have to worry about taking it to the renderer. The other thing that you have to at least worry some about is any other animals that may come in contact with that carcass. So... Dogs or, or wildlife. Yep. Uh, that that drug is still going to be effective if they eat some yep. of that carcass, and will be effective on them as well. So be be very careful with that option. But then you mentioned the gunshot and the and the captive bolt. And I guess one of the things that that I have seen that can be a very and it, and these are both AVMA approved, the American Veterinary Medical Association and the American Association of Bovine Practitioners, which both are veterinary professional associations, have both approved both those methods because they're quick, practical, and you can do them, but you do have to have a certain level of skill. Right? You have to know exactly where you're going to go, and I would say for (laughs) most times, unless you have looked inside a skull, the brain might not be right where you think it is.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that and again, this is a not not a pleasant or is a topic, but most producers hopefully won't have had the need to euthanize very many animals, uh, and and we're talking about deadly methods here, and so this is a place where it probably really does make sense to rely on a veterinarian who, you know, is more likely to have experience um, either you know any of these methods, um, and and so again, that, but that's also one of the 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 reasons why sometimes this decision is delayed is, well, there's a chance she'll get better. And I don't want to euthanize her. I don't have the tools. I don't have the knowledge. And so I'll put this decision off till tomorrow or tomorrow or tomorrow. And I think what we're saying is probably the decision needs to be made today and probably a veterinarian needs to be involved, not because it's particularly difficult, but they have the tools and the experience um, to to accomplish a euthanasia well.
0: Yeah. And I think it it is a topic that, as you said, it's not a fun topic to talk about. It's not, but sometimes this is the best alternative and doing it well is important and making sure that you have people safety, human safety, all of the other aspects included. So I think there's some really good resources online. So I mentioned the American Veterinary Medical Association has euthanasia guidelines, the American Association of, of Bovine Practitioners, has euthanasia guidelines, both of those are available. If you Google them, you can also ask your veterinarian, and I think that is uh, something that is pretty important to make sure that you have the right tools at your disposal. One of the other topics that we wanted to talk about, and, Philip, we talked uh, uh, last week or a couple weeks ago relative to creep feeding, and then we said, well, if if we get into a drought that maybe early weaning is a good idea, and we talked a little bit about early weaning, but I want to address what, what are some other potential drought management strategies as we get to this time of year where midsummer, the grass is, is maybe drying up or may at least be getting mature, uh, changes the nutritional needs. And if I've got less grass than I thought, what are my options?
2: Well, Brad, so <clears throat> the first, I mean, what you got to think about is okay, how much feed resources do I have compared to how many mouths do I have to feed? And so, we need to think about the going at it. I guess from both sides of that equation, um, how many, how much feed can I get? So if I'm if I'm running out of grass, if if the drought is is that bad that I'm running out of grass, start looking for other feed resources. Um, and so, some of that could be crops. You know, if if our drought is that severe, you know, some some of our crop fields may not be going to produce. Um, what what they should, or definitely not what they should, or, or even something that's worth harvesting, and so it may be best to harvest it as a feed resource right now before it gets even. Um, I say before it dries up and, and has no value, even as a feed resource, um,
0: could be could be an option. Um, so, Philip, let me let me interrupt you. And I'm I'm thinking. I'm picturing in my head we've got spring calving cows, they've got calves on their side. I'm getting low on feed resources and I'm kind of thinking simplistically that maybe I need energy, maybe I need protein or do I need both? What kind of feed if I want to supplement those cows? Am I more worried about protein or energy or am I missing something? So when we're we're
2: talking energy for the for the most part um, i also, we need to, to monitor protein and, and we may need to supplement some protein too. But, but carbohydrates is our main energy source and we need carbohydrates, um, in large quantities. I mean, that's the bulk of that, of the nutrients in that cow's diet in the form of forage is it's mainly carbohydrates. And so, um, she needs energy to maintain her body condition and to, and to produce or just maintain herself. Um, we may need to, depending on what that carbohydrate source is, we may need to supplement some protein as well. But the main
0: thing is figuring out a energy source. Because that's a lot of what she's getting from the grass is carbohydrates with some protein. But if we have to replace that, we may have to have an energy source. So we, we thought about early weaning the calves. What about Removing the cows from the pasture and limit feeding them during the summer. Does that make sense? That that's an option. So if if our pasture is that short,
2: and so you know one of the things to think about in a drought situation is we we typically would think, well, I'm going to just graze until there's absolutely no grass left. Um, but but then you, now you got to start taking a little long term. Um, so now I've overgrazed that pasture, and so it, it's going to hurt. The re- rebound of that pasture grass next year, if I'm going to overgraze it that that much, and so we still need to be cognizant of that. Um, and so, pulling those cows off a little earlier than grazing it down to the ground um, would probably be beneficial in the long run. But then, obviously, we got to do something with them. And so, putting them in a dry lot um, and limit feeding a what we would say a moderate energy diet. So when you take moderate energy, you think about a, a starter ration for calves. I mean, that's kind of what we're, we're talking about um, as far as the energy level goes. And, then, and we're going to limit the amount. So we're not going to feed it ad lib or full feed. We're going to limit the amount to meet her requirements. And so that requires a lot more management. We've got to calculate the right amount. We've got to be able to weigh it out. And since we're limit feeding, we got to have enough bunk space for all those cows to eat at the same time. Otherwise, some cows are going to get more than their share and some are going to get less.
0: Yeah. And I think great point on the grass, because the other thing is, depending on the situation, just letting the grass rest. Sometimes if you take them off soon enough, it'll come back. I mean, a lot of our grasses, you look 21, 28, 35 days, they'll make a world of difference, but not if they're to the ground. Then you look back in 21 days and it's still on the ground because it damages, depending on the grass, it can damage that root structure where they're getting water. So limit feeding an option. We talked some, what do, you, what do you think about combining limit feeding, early weaning, and, and Brian, I know you've got experience with calves that are weaned, young calves that are weaned. Any health challenges I should worry about there in early weaning?
3: Not <clears throat> so with calves, I mean, I don't know that if your early weaning is done right, it's okay, right? You you see the same disease challenges that you see in in other calves. Um, If it's done wrong and they don't get enough carbohydrates like uh, Philip was saying and stuff, now you've got a calf that's potentially immunocompromised and gets set up for the whole host. I mean, we see pneumonia, right? That's the most common disease syndrome, but um, anything will show up if you have an immunocompromised calf.
0: So I think keep a couple of good tips there. Keep an eye on the pastures. make a decision sooner rather than later. and think about the long term. What are the implications for that for that pasture? And a lot of our a lot of our topics have been that way today. And the other one I wanted to get to and, and Philip, this is right up your alley too is if we're let me change the scenario and let's say we're not let's not just focus on drought, but let's just think about I've got a reasonable amount of grass. And I'm putting some stalker cattle out on it. And I put them out in the spring. I want to graze them through the summer until fall. Do I need to supplement those cattle? Or if I have a good grass base, is grass enough? Depends.
2: I'll say depends on the grass. Um, so thinking about our warm season, native pastures and, and things like that, those, this time of year is about the time to start uh, protein supplementation to those calves because the the protein content in that forage is declining and the digestibility is declining uh, because of the lack of protein in the rumen for the microbes and so we're going to provide a rumen degradable protein to those calves at about one pound uh, of a per day of a 40 percent protein supplement and and that will boost their performance here through the the second half of the summer. another. Other options, if you want higher performance than that, is we can provide an energy supplement. Um, Some things to think about with that is we don't want a high starch. We want a high fiber um, energy supplement like distillers, grains, or wheat mids, or soybean hulls, or something like that, um, so that we're not depressing forage digestion any. Um, But then, you know, with with drought in different parts of the country, uh, the commodity prices are going up, and so you really got to pencil that out this year, whether you're going to, that's going to pay off or not.
1: So you can get better performance, but you just got to make sure that the, the cost of that better average daily gain is paid by the cattle.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that feed costs may be more
0: than the added value of gain. Yeah. So where, where do things like implants play into this discussion? And, and Bob, I know you've had some experience with that. If we think about cattle that have been implanted a lot of times it helps their feed efficiency. So if I've got marginal forage out there, I've already implanted the stalkers, does it make more sense to supplement in that equation or less sense?
1: I think one of the things that that at least I think I understand about the use of implants and supplements is is really it's about um to to make implants work they need an energy source so you they they don't create you know they they repartition nutrients they don't create nutrition or nutrients out of thin air and so they so if you're gonna if you've got implanted calves and the diet quality whatever it's from is not sufficient you're not going to get much benefit from that implant uh and so uh yes implants will improve feed efficiency some some growth rate uh, but they need the the nutrients to do that, uh, and so uh, if the forage is not supplying sufficient nutrients, the the the, the implants aren't going to magically create uh, nutrients. You got to have the resources. Yeah. So if
0: if you don't have the resources, they're not going to magically make it right. better. Feed efficiency
1: on feed that's not there. That's not there. So you've got to ha- you got to supply the feed, and then you get and and in many situations again, faster gain is more efficient, but you do you know put a pencil to it, make sure there's, there's going to be an optimum in there.
0: Excellent. Well, good discussion. And I think that's a, another one to think about as you, as you think about supplementing. And one last thing I'd say there, Philip, when you say supplement versus feed, are you thinking that it's a quantity amount that's different? So when you talk about supplementing cattle versus we just talked about limit feeding, to me, those two words have pretty different meanings. What are, what are you thinking? So from a nutrition perspective, we use those two different terms to whether
2: so if we take supplement, we typically use those terms it's it's again, it's kind of a quantity, it's a small amount generally and it's the goal is to provide a limiting nutrient um, in the forage. And so usually we're get grazing cattle um, and that's in, and we're talking about providing a supplement to them. When we're talking about feed, then we're generally providing the whole diet to those animals and it, it's a large, uh, it, it's a large amount
0: of, of feed that we're, that we're providing. Okay. So when we're supplementing, make sure that you, you don't get, and you, you mentioned it earlier, but I want to reiterate, uh, if, if you provide enough and you talked about the high starch feeds, you actually can change how the rumen is going to digest the forage, which can be a problem. So you need to do the math on that to make sure if you are feeding something high starch, say you had corn in a bin or something that you wanted to feed, you, you don't want to feed too much of it or you'll you'll change how their rumen is digesting the forage and you don't end up substi- supplementing. You end up substituting something that's there and it doesn't necessarily make it better. So great points on that and good discussion today. And we enjoyed you listening and spending some time with us. We always enjoy visiting with you. We'll also enjoy getting your questions. So you can always send us a question at bci at ksu.edu.
3: <laughs>